Hello, and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of me and my dead husband. (laughs) R.I.P. Pour one out for his real name. Yep. And we know it. We do I feel like know everyone it. in this Richard? book is named Arthur. Yes, Richard. <laughs> I don't think anyone in this book is named Arthur, <laughs> shockingly. But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. They feel like their names should all just be like, Sean, Roger, Pierce, and Daniel. <laughs> sure. What does that mean? The, the Bond actors. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Timothy. Um, Definitely some Timothys in this book. Sure, I guess. Um, what's the guy's name? Uh, the the main, not the main, but the the like secondary antagonist. Colt or Roberts no. or Simonson. I guess, the, I guess the primary antagonist. Oh, Damien Lake. Yeah, D- Damien Lake. That's a, he gives real Mission Impossible energy. Sure, who's he's the, a bit of a who's the villain. Yeah, Sean Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so much so, in fact, that in the like last issue, I thought we were about to get a Mission Impossible mask pull, and it was going to be Velvet <laughs> <laughs> in disguise as Damien Lake. I genuinely, there was like a shot of him where his face was in shadow and his hair was hanging forward, and you just saw like the one strand of gray, and I was like, <gasps> sure. Velvet mask pull, Velvet mask pull. <laughs> Sure. Solomon Lane, of course, is... Uh, Solomon Lane. So Very similar name. <laughs> I'm vindicated. You're, you're absolutely in the right here. Uh, we are, of course, talking about the work of Ed Brubaker, and I feel like we're now at the point where I can legitimately say we are getting towards the end yes. of our miniseries. Uh, of course, covering the first one in how many episodes that is not illustrated or drawn, penciled by Sean Phillips. I think it's... Take a guess and I'll count it. I think it's probably the first... I think the last six have been with Phillips. So I'm going to say... I think it's five. The first, the there, first in seven, that makes it? Sure. I think it's the first... So the, the two criminal episodes, mm-hmm. one incognito episode, mm-hmm. and two fatal episodes. Mm-hmm. So that's five in all. But this is actually an artist we have not talked about, which is kind of ironic because, mm-hmm. you know, it's very famously associated with Ed Brubaker. Indeed. Uh, the old Steffri <laughs> Epstein. Oh, boy. Oh, Steve Epting, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, yes, Steve Epting is in the house, his famous Captain America collaborator, their run, of course, frequently heralded. I think their run is probably like the precursor to the whole Marvel thing of like, it's a superhero thing, but actually it's this other genre. Um, right. In that like it also drew at the time, it was very much the thing to be like, if you think about it, if you squint a little bit, I think you'll find that it's actually an espionage comic. With It just so happens that the main spy is Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which obviously became a very much like an MCU thing, I feel like. Yeah. And, and Winter Soldier is kind of, I guess, is Ant-Man before Winter Soldier? That's the one where it got like unbearable for me. <laughs> I feel like Winter Soldier, I think Winter Soldier is the right call, though, because that's the one where it's like, 
it's actually a 70s political throw. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> That's a huge lie. <laughs> this, however, is a 70s political thriller. Talk to me about the Watergate reveal. <laughs> what? How did you react to the Watergate reveal in this comic velvet, which we are discussing? Not as severely as I reacted to the Gerald Ford... <laughs> <laughs> Gerald Ford is being blackmailed by a German spy he got a blowjob from reveal. Uh, I was reeling so hard from... So, well, okay. So, we will get into the plot synopsis of this book, but suffice to say that, like, the second act climax, basically, is that Velvet learns that the it's thing Gerald that Ford's. she's been investigating the whole time is the Watergate scandal, basically. Um which made me laugh out loud very hard. And I was like, am I supposed to be laughing at this? Cause it's really funny. <laughs> and then I was kind of like, surely that's as ridiculous as it gets. And then we open the next issue and it's like her <laughs> with Nixon. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Oh, okay. We're completely off the rails. Um, so I was still like reeling so hard from like Nixon is in this book with his like face shown and is like front and center in this issue that I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. This fictional vice president, like I didn't even stop to be like, oh, it's Gerald Ford. I was just like, oh, who's, who's this guy? I was like, this can't possibly be because I think I like maybe glossed over the first Nixon page. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't like fully clock that it was in fact Nixon. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, when they said Mr. President, I was like, okay, so it's like a fictional president who mm-hmm. has come in after Nixon has resigned. Right. And the she's like, I was singing happy birthday to. Yeah, you love that. <laughs> but yeah, so then, and then I was like, I was like, oh, that's, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure it was Gerald Ford because like who, especially People not from the United States could, like, pick Gerald Ford out of a lineup. Mm -hmm. But I was like, that's Gerald Ford's trademark hair. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, like, Wikipedia Gerald Ford, and I was like, that is him. (laughs) And then, yeah, like you said, it's it's very off the rails. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So Nixon is in this. Um but uh, but we'll talk about that more later, I'm sure. Steve Epting, uh, to go back to the original thing that we were talking about, putting in work uh, on this book. A guy who knows how to draw a gun. A guy I'll who knows how to draw him. a gun. Absolutely, he knows how to draw a gun. I right would say... Issue one cover, I was oh, like, yeah, Whoa, there's this a gun is very extremely like, detailed. Yeah, there's an insanely photorealistic gun <laughs> within like the first couple of pages of the first issue that I was like, Steve's here to to do some work, baby. I would say for multiple reasons, the reason this comic is good, uh, which it is, spoilers about my opinion, this comic is good. I think in part because Steve Epting is yeah, doing the absolute most in the art, but also because so Brubaker had the idea to do this originally while they were working on Captain America, but he was like, I want to do it with you. I want to do it creator owned. And then like, while they were waiting for the schedules to line up, he left Marvel and went like, you know, image, I guess he's not actually technically image exclusive yet at this point, but he went, he was, he was 
this is his first book, like fully post Marvel. Like he's no longer writing any Marvel comics when the first issue comes out. So, so they weren't going to do icon obviously. So then he was like waiting for Steve Epting's Marvel exclusive contract to be done. And I think that like the natural point of comparison book of his for me with this is incognito. And this book is so much better than (laughs) incognito that I'm just kind of like, (laughs) thank goodness he had to wait like eight years to make this. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I feel, I do feel like I don't really remember Captain America, like his Captain America runs super well, mm-hmm. but I do feel like he could have like made this pretty much any time, right? <sighs> Me, I mean, we just, we just a couple of days ago recorded an episode where we were like, does Ed Brubaker know how a woman's brain works? And then I read this and well, I was I like, takes on this. okay, I'm, I'm interested to hear them. I think he does a lot better with Velvet than with Josephine is basically what <laughs> my my opinion of it boils down to. I think my take on, because I, <laughs> in my head I was like, I don't want to make the whole episode about this again. Uh-huh. I think that it's a, it's he's, he's putting himself in a much easier situation for starters. Yes, that's like, true. We talked about the idea of him sort of like he is able to write in like a period piece a little better. And also like weirdly sexism like isn't weirdly like isn't a thing that much in this comic. Like not other than the fact that like she has become a secretary and there's sort of like implicit like mm-hmm. the idea of that she is sort of like being put in her place quote unquote that's sort of like an implicit subtextual thing about it but like it's never like how did a dame do this to us it's like she just like it's yeah, like it's how did a secretary awesome. do this to us <laughs> <laughs> right and so like it is more subtextual in that way and also like it is about a woman who became too hysterical when her husband died <laughs> that's true that is true that's like the main thing and it's like the character is like cool uh, very cool and the comic is very good i agree with you but yeah that <laughs> that was like the main <laughs> thing that stuck out to me and like you know the whole angle of sexuality like again he doesn't really like investigate the internality of her sexuality very much mm-hmm. um and like i'm fine with that <laughs> because i mean he does it's also i think he did more with that in this one than he did in Fatal, which is crazy because <laughs> sex is like part of this book, whereas Fatal is like basically about sex. <laughs> right. But like she at least has a bit of time where she is like thinking about what sex means to her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's it's like I don't really have any strong opinions about that part, I guess, like because at first I was like, uh, whatever, like I, I was worried it was going to be a little bit too much of like, she's the sexy saboteur, mm-hmm. like she sleeps with the men to get the information she needs. And like, it is a little bit of that, but then it is, I know it's also very clear that it's like everyone <laughs> like sleeps yeah. with whoever to get the information that they want. So like, I was a little more like, it doesn't seem to be like gender based really. No. Yeah. It's certainly like, uh, all, all of the men who are in the spy game are like basically bond and are seducing people and and yes using weaponized sex basically yeah I, I guess I don't really have a ton to think about it either other than that like when I was reading the times when she was like basically reflecting about like sex as an espionage tool I was like 
so in this book, <laughs> we get the character like explicitly ruminating right. on like <laughs> what what her sexuality means to her, which is like interesting, I guess, because in a way, she also is kind of a femme fatale in her own yes. way, not not as like explicitly as Josephine, I guess, but um, well, it's a different kind of character, I think. Like she's. It's not the femme fatale exactly, but it is a character who like weaponizes their sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's I guess I guess it's maybe Boyle like comes back to the same thing we were talking about where it's like easier for him to work with like more explicit gender norms or like sexual mores or mores or however you say that word or what have you where like the the femme fatale is positioned as like the temptress and his attempts to kind of like work with that position It seemed like he struggled with a bit, whereas this is more so about like the girl Friday archetype as like a sexualized object, which which is like similar but different because like so much of it's it's like a very weird thing that he talks about. I think he he like rattles off basically all these like secretaries in spy books and like pi books and things like that who are like in love with their boss basically but they are like never the one who actually like sleeps with the main character they just like are in love with him and then and then he goes off and sleeps with the fatale right so it's it's interesting that when he like kind of shifts to play with like a different trope within the same sort of like collection of tropes i don't know he seemed he seemed more comfortable with it to me Yeah, I mean, it also, I don't really feel like gender plays a huge role in this book, weirdly, Um, sort of like I was alluding to earlier. And like, even I feel like he almost shies away from sort of presenting the maybe like gender text of it almost because like, yes, she is a secretary, but it's like the feeling is not like she has she has been made into a secretary the feeling is like she has been given a desk job which mm-hmm. is basically like she is like the administrator of the entire agency like she yeah. is not like it's not a like demeaning or whatever the feminine version of emasculating position for her it's more that like she's behind a desk versus out in the field. Yeah. I do think that he like leaves some stuff on the table as far as that goes, where like there are only actually like a handful of people that actually know that it's not like a demotion, like, or, or that, that she would have any qualification to like be doing anything else, I guess, basically. And like, you know, especially in the early issues, there's a lot of talk about like, Oh, we keep underestimating her, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, yeah, I think the, like, feminized labor aspect of it is something that could have been explored further. But I read an interview with Brubaker slash he, like, talked about it in a bunch of different interviews. It was one of, like, I don't know, you read enough interviews with people, you'll be like, ah, they have, like, the go-to, like, three stories about where the idea for this came from. Actually, now I'm getting ahead of myself. That's not actually what I want to talk about. The comment that I'm (laughs) thinking of that he made was basically to say, like, I think the unexamined perspective is interesting. And that kind of, like, clarified it for me a bit more, where it's, like, it's not actually, like, the gender element is why these perspectives for this one in Fatal are the unexamined perspective, 
but they're not the reason that he's interested in inhabiting them. And that kind of made me go like, oh, that maybe is sort of like why, like, I still, I still think, especially with Fatal, I'm like, how could you not end up with like some of the things that we talked about extensively in the last episode? But it did make me sort of go like, oh, he, he, <laughs> not, not to Kanye, it, but like, he doesn't care about women or like, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't care about gender as like the main focus of the story. He cares about like the alternative perspective Right. In the same way, you know, like, I feel like, <laughs> uh, not that I would want him to write this, but it's like in the same way that it would be like, if it was about a black man in the 70s, like, right. he's interested in the idea of sort of like a marginalized voice. Yeah. Which like we have kind of come across from him before, not even like the marginalized voice per se, but like, it's basically the same impetus for incognito where he was he talked about like i always like to think like oh we've got the shield about the cop what about like a similar story from the perspective of the mobster oh we've got like you know these superhero stories what about the story from the perspective of the supervillain like i think that is the same ultimately the same like storytelling instinct that drove him to both velvet and fatale and i think especially i think I actually think Velvet more so. Like, I think Fatal is more so like, it sounds like born out of a conversation that he had with another writer where they were basically like the femme fatale specifically is like a crazy trope. Someone should like play with that. Someone should like it. It's it was more so about the trope, if that makes sense. Whereas Velvet is more so like it's it, the the elevator pitch is like what if Money Penny was secretly James Bond, um, sure. although he he himself kind of like that's that's the way people sort of like you know one one sentence logline it. Although I find that he is like reluctant to cite Money Penny specifically, which is kind of funny. But Money Penny, yeah, Funny Penny. <laughs> that's what you just said. Um, <laughs> but but. I don't think that as I think that that is one aspect of what appeals to him. But I also think that more so this is why what I sort of meant about like, I'm glad that he was older when he wrote this, because this is in some ways like about (laughs) if this is kind of like a second act book in some ways um, of like Velvet. No, I mean, the movie draws its name from a, a like social concept. Right. right. <laughs> uh, it's it's like sort of a midlife crisis book. Sure. And it is in some ways about aging. It is in some ways yeah. about like the long arm of trauma. It is about. And so like, I think that especially he talked about it a lot with regards to the second issue where she like goes and finds like the wife of the general who x14 seduced uh where he was basically like we see like you know you have the the bond girl trope as well but what in a bond movie it's like bond loves them and leaves them and we go with him but like what happens to the person who's like the woman who's behind the iron curtain who just like committed treason (laughs) possibly without realizing it like what are the consequences for her and again not because like not not from like a gender perspective just from a perspective of like well we have this character who's very important for a short time and then is discarded wouldn't it be interesting if we like it's it's sort of the superhero perspective and like 
it it's the same sort of like logical process to me as like power scaling and things like that and thinking about like how would how would this power actually work in the real world it's the same sort of like how would that work in the real world type of thinking about like well what happens to that person after like the camera moves away maybe they get thrown in a gulag and their eye gets removed right i guess the main thing that i'm sort of thinking about is like you could make this book with like it's probably not nearly as good but like you could make a book that's like 85% similar with a male character mm-hmm. whereas fatal it's like you obviously like there's no way to do that <laughs> with a man although that would be insane for someone to try and i would be interested in reading it um but like yeah you know what i mean like I think that you're right that it is an important part and maybe more important than it seems like textually. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like ultimately at the end of the day, like like you said, he doesn't necessarily care that much about women particularly as opposed to more like the position that the character occupies within the world. Yeah. And because of that, I also find this book a lot more like psychological than Fatal. Like it's it's just it's very funny to me that in that he was like what if the femme fatale was a real person what if what if she was an actual character but then i'm like to me velvet is a much more like fully fleshed out character maybe that's because we spend the whole book pretty much from her perspective yeah, whereas it, the fatale is a bit more sprawling but but yeah it is it's it's funny to me that he has one book where the goal is like richness of character basically that I think he comes up a little bit short, at least in terms. I I read another interview where he was talking about both books, and to hear him like talking about Josephine's character from his perspective, I was like, I mean, it's not like he didn't think about it. I just don't think he like captured it very effectively for the reader, especially compared to Velvet, where yeah, it it just she she does feel more human. Which I mean, Josephine is kind of inhuman in some ways if you think about it. Sure, the freaking Terrigan mist. Um, yeah, I mean, like like you said, I think the perspective plays a huge role there. And because, like, you know, I think almost by necessity, Fatal has to, like, somewhat be about the way that other, other characters respond to her. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, a big part of it. But then it's like, you know, this book is so narration heavy. Like, I'm sure if yeah. you counted up the, if you count up the number, it would probably be more than 50% of the pages have more than 50% of the text as narration which i think is just like you know like it works really well but that's like a huge amount that we get like perspective from the character in that way i would say there are probably more narration box more narration boxes in the book than there are panels a lot like maybe close to double sure i think that's probably true and it's good (laughs) it is good um so I, I can't decide where, whether I want to synopsize first or talk about this other thought that let's, I have. <laughs> let's synopsize because there is no okay. Wikipedia article, a huge blow to me personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but also like... <laughs> but this is an exciting opportunity for you to write the Wikipedia article, a thing <laughs> you love to do. <laughs> I did think about this. Um, famously, my letterbox tag, movies I've written the Wikipedia plot summary for... It's very robust, and you know it's it's an important role mm-hmm. in the world. I sure. feel like I'm, you know, providing a service. If someone yep. wanted, I mean, the King of Staten Island, Hustle, 
People sure. want to know what those movies are about. The Way Back. <laughs> I think that's, yes, that's correct. Uh, <laughs> the Scary of 61st, the Dasha Nekrasova, Jeffrey Epstein movie. Speaking of Steffrey Epstein. Whoa. <laughs> I can't engage with this idea. <laughs> about the Scary of 61st? Yeah. It's a crazy so, movie. Velvet is a spy comic. There's no denying that. Yes. Uh, there's so there's so many things that I want to talk about, but we really should synopsize first, and yeah. then I should but have they, written them all down. A pretty cogent <laughs> plot, I will say. Like, more cogent than Fatal, for sure. Yeah. It So, he was originally shopping this as a TV series, I believe. I was... That's I want to talk about that as well. Like the I I feel like right now, like in this era, he is fully like writing thing. Like you know, in the same way well, like Michael Crichton would write a novel to be made into a movie. He is like writing yeah. comics to be made into TV series. I will. So I will say that is like very much a real thing. Velvet. If if that's true, like. I got the sense more so that he was shopping the concept. He wasn't basically he wasn't getting any traction from TV producers. In fact, I know he wasn't because he talked in one of the interviews I read about the consistent feedback he got, which was, we love it. Can we make her 25? And he was like, no, right. <laughs> the whole point. The whole point is that she's like 45. And then they were like, this is fine. We have this graphic novel no one's ever heard of and we're going to make Atomic Blonde. <laughs> yes, which um, I thought of Atomic Blonde several times while reading this. Um, Do not like that movie. Which, which was funny. I I think of it very fondly, mostly because it has like that crazy fight scene in the middle, which I'm just like, that fight scene is so good. Sure. I think that fight scene's a little overrated. Maybe I was going in expecting it to be if like you, amazing. Yeah. If you if you heard about it in advance, I can see why you would feel that way. That summer was just a summer when I saw so many movies and I went into Atomic Blonde, like literally knowing almost nothing about it other than like it's Charlie's Theron. It's in the 80s. It's an action movie. Like right. that was the extent of it. Didn't know about the comic connection. Didn't know it was a spy movie, anything like that. And I was kind of like, this is sort of boring. And then all of a sudden in the middle, there's like this like five minute fight scene that is a one uh, that I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. It also has um, a demented plot and like a demented it reveal. Does. It does. It does have <laughs> all of that. <laughs> it does have all of that. Which just like um, made but, me furious. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Anyways, I thought it, so I thought about it because I was like, Charlize would be a good velvet. And then I was like, sure. wait, am I just thinking about that because of atomic blonde? Probably. And then there's a part in the book where she talks about how, like, fights that last longer than five seconds are brutal. And I was like, yeah, I know. I've seen it on the blonde. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anyways, so he, I think, I think he was shopping it. He was not having any luck. And then he was basically just like, well, whatever. I'll I just make this. Yeah. Like I'm I'm a huge A-list comic book creator and everything I'm doing right now is a financial success, so why don't me and one of my closest collaborators just like make a ton off this on comics and then if someone wants to adapt it later, great. And so like compared to someone like Mark Miller, who is basically like printing storyboards at this point in his career around the same time, this is like a much more robust 
like comics that are written to be adapted don't run for 15 issues. They run for like four. Right. And like, you know, it, there are, there are stylistic elements that don't necessarily, that would not play as, Mm -hmm. but I, but I also almost feel like that is like by design almost, or like by the idea that he wanted, he thinks about it as a TV series is that like you would like the same things that just have a bunch of narration over them. And like mm-hmm. you get some of that internality would probably just be presented without narration. <laughs> like they would yeah, just happen yeah. or it would be like yeah. someone else talking about velvet voicing over her doing something or something like that. Yeah. There were, there were several points where I was like, this would, this would like never, <laughs> this would never make it to the screen basically. And like, this is a movie, right? This isn't a TV show. Oh, I think this is like absolutely. I, this is like think season you, one, 10 episodes. You think this is season one, 10 episodes? I think you take pretty much any scene that Velvet is in, like put all of those together and then cut like 80% of them and then cut like 20% of Velvet's scenes as well. And you just have like a solid two hour movie. I mean, you can do it as a movie, but it feel it does feel to me at least like and I, part of it is like I think the universe is well fleshed out, and I think like the sort of the way the characters operate within the universe sort of has some longevity to it, and that's mm-hmm. why I maybe like see a little more like because like it's I mean it's not like it's like it ends with her I mean it does kind of end with her blowing up the agency, <laughs> but like <laughs> do you know what I mean like it's not like it doesn't yeah, yeah. really have that definitive ending to it, and I think a big part of that is that they intended or still intend to make more. Yes, they did. I'm I'm not really clear. They definitely left the door open, and like one of the like last things Brew Baker says in the pages of, I think both the singles and the deluxe edition that I have is basically like, uh, Velvet, more Velvet soon, hopefully, like in the near future, which seems to be his trademark. Like, look for more of this in the near future, never published again. <laughs> Right. I mean, like, literally, I'm look. I I have the single on hand, and literally in the like letters page, it's like, and so it says directly, and so we come to the conclusion of our first big velvet story. Mm-hmm. And you know, he talks about like working on Westworld, and like I think yeah, it I was, was gonna say like that is that is the other big TV thing of it all is that this is a 15 issue book that took almost three full years to come out because he was like working on Westworld at this point. So I do think that there's also an element of like, I have my foot in the door in like the TV writing world. What can I maybe like get in while I'm here? That is more like my thing. (laughs) And also when does, so when does he sign the image contract? Because maybe does that sort of preclude him working as much with other artists maybe so the first the first book that comes out under the image exclusive contract is the fade out which we will be talking about next and which came out like not that long after fatal or after velvet started because the teaser for it is in the final issue of fatal and number issue one of velvet comes out the same month as issue number like 19 of fatal right sorry so (laughs) (laughs) to to answer the question more succinctly i think that he either 
had signed or was like pretty deep in negotiations on his exclusive when the first issue of Velvet came out, which was also around the time that he was working on Westworld. Now, the details of the exclusive, I, I so it, like, I don't think it binds him to working with Sean Phillips. I think right. the, I just mean like, doesn't it? It probably makes him more likely. Definitely. Um, and we're we're talking about someone who he has already chosen to work with very consistently, even without like any extra incentives. But but I think basically like the terms of the deal are that Image was like, if you and Sean Phillips have a book, we will publish it. Like right. no no questions asked. But you have to publish it with us. <laughs> right. Which I you know I think that probably I mean I don't know what the exact financial strata of it but i have to imagine that having a contract like that you're probably going to prioritize that work that is under that contract surely yeah so i i have i actually have a lot of questions that i haven't been able to find answers for about this deal because with most creator-owned series most of the risk is carried by the creative team like image image doesn't pay the creative team at all and in fact the creative team usually has to pay image to publish the book with the hope that then the sales of which like all the revenue goes back to the creative team are going to cover those costs and then pay them equal to or better than what they would have made um on a page rate Working right. at and the big two. And then, the and then you like have taking like a chunk of the back end or whatever from a movie. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then like, of course, there's other huge advantages in the more kind of like long term as far as like trade sales. Again, same thing, like all of the actual like profit on those goes back to the creative team. They retain like the media rights. So anything like adaptations, things like that, obviously they make all the money for that as well. But it, yeah, in terms of like actually getting the book going, the creative team usually starts off like in the hole several thousand dollars and is kind of like hoping that it, or 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 knows that in the case of more like A-list creators like Brew Baker that like eventually the sales are going to recoup all of that and more. And that's what lets books like independent books survive with a much smaller readership because all of the money is going back to the creative team. So they don't have a publisher being like, we're not making enough money to pay you to make this book because they're like, well, we're paying ourselves. And the only costs we have associated with it other than our time is like printing costs, basically. So all that to say, like, I'm, I don't know... To me, it seems like Image should be paying them something, like on top of I mean, if, like, whatever it is. What, because what other it's, impetus it's, is there for them to sign the contract? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, I guess at some level, it seems like, well, we like we're giving you like basically like a blank slate. Like you can publish literally whatever you want. To which I feel like if I was them, I would reply. Yeah, we can we're already Drew Baker and Sean Phillips. We can publish whatever we want. Yeah. <laughs> like, duh. Um, so, so yeah, I don't have the details because they didn't offer this deal to like 80 different creators uh, a la Substack. And so no one's out there like very openly being like, I had a meeting with Image and they offered me this amount of money to like right. have an exclusive with them. But I have to assume that they are being paid 
And I would guess the only way it makes sense is like per series, basically. Like every time you publish something with us, we will pay you this much. Sure. Because otherwise, or- if they're not publishing anything, then then Image is just literally paying them to do nothing. Well, I mean, like, I think that, I mean, I don't really know how, like, an overall deal, like, because, like, people will sign with a studio, like, a first look deal or an overall deal, which I don't think necessarily precludes, like, you have to make something necessarily. I think it's more about, like, or, like, you know, something doesn't have to come out. It's more just that, like, anything you want to make, we are going to get in there. I think I, I just think that compared to movies or, or compared to comics, there are so many points at which making a movie can become untenable sure. or so many more points, including like, yeah, you might have like an overall deal, but that doesn't mean that like the executives aren't at some point going to be like, actually, no, that's like too much money. We're not going to make it like image is never going to be like what you're proposing is too expensive. We can't possibly print it. So it's like a very different kind of like economic consideration because really, again, still at the end of the day, there is no economic risk on images part. Unless again, that could be part of the deal is like, and of course you won't pay production costs. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah, but then, but then I'm like, so then, but what, what then is images like, cut do they do they just get the same cut that they would get from any of their titles yeah i mean like well the cut but for an overall deal i think it's also just like you could sit there doing nothing but you would just not make any because like well i mean i don't know how their deal works but like for an overall deal you aren't able to like shop it anywhere else for that for the time period of the deal so it's like i think there is I guess there is some level of like (laughs) trust, but it's like, are you really going to not make anything for five years or are you just like going to make the things you want to make and it will be under our banner regardless? Mm. Yeah. I have, I have questions about this deal again, as I said, because there are so many factors that make it so unique. And a big one of those is the fact that it's an, it's an independent publishing house who normally is like, you pay the production costs. We take a small percentage of the sales. That's it. <laughs> like that's that's basically the deal, which is just so different from the like Marvel DC, which is very much kind of like a studio system where it's like it is more like an overall deal where it's like they might choose not to give you any work while you're on your exclusive, but they're still like you're still being paid. Right. Which well, has happened. Right. That makes me think of like. Uh, this is a really specific reference, but like in the nineties, the big thing for like, it was like WWF versus WCW. (laughs) That was like the way that they were able to lure stars away from WWF was like, we will give you guaranteed money versus the WWF, which was like a per appearance. So maybe that's kind of the dichotomy there is like, you know, like we might leave you on the shelf and you'll just have to sit and wait out your deal. And that did happen when WCW closed is like (laughs) a lot of big stars were like, I will just sit at home and take money for the life of my deal. And then when it expires, I'll go somewhere else. But yeah, that's, that's what that makes me think of. Classic. So yeah, weird, weird deal. (laughs) Interesting situation. Ed, publish a copy of your contract. (laughs) Yeah, drop, (laughs) drop the tract. (laughs) 
Yeah, leak the docs. Uh, go go full velvet on them. So true. Which brings us back <laughs> to, of course, the plot synopsis that I got as far as it is a spy comic. <laughs> so, 42 minutes we're about to hit right now. And here I go again with the plot synopsis. So, Velvet Templeton, killer name. No relation to the rat. No, no relation, no relation to the rat. Well, she is kind of a freaking rat. Is the the money penny of this uh, international spy agency the checking the spine of the book here? Allied Reconnaissance Commission, seven. the ARC, aka ARC Seven, a thing that I have questions about. Um, <laughs> She is the secretary to the director of this agency. She is the administrator of basically the entire organization. When one of the Bond-like operatives of the organization um, is killed, she has some questions about it. And when she goes digging into it, she finds herself framed for the murder of another ex-agent. And on the run, she is... um, simultaneously trying to evade arc seven's best and brightest while conducting her own investigation into the murder of her, uh, former friend and lover. Um, unclear one, one yes, one no. Anyways, she's trying to figure out who killed these two men in the course of that. We, the thing that you didn't mention is that like, there's this mole within the agency and the big, well, she doesn't know that at this point. I think we find that out like very early on. That there's like a mole in the agency and basically that they, that both she and her husband, who is also an agent, this is like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. were both like set up to think that each other was the mole. And like, this is what I was getting to. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> yes, she is an ex-field operative who was married to a fellow agent uh, who she killed because she had been led to believe that he was a traitor this whole situation makes it clear to her that, in fact, whoever was pulling the strings back then never went anywhere. And now she has been the one who has been made to look like a traitor. She killed her husband for nothing. So she begins to follow the trail of uh, this investigation, which takes her on like a fair bit of globe hopping, um, tracking down leads, talking to people who knew uh, these these dead men. She discovers the existence of this corporation who she is told that one of the like listed board members is a known sort of alias of an ARC-7 agent who who she kind of narrows it down to like there's there's a limited number of people who could be this person uh, who use this alias including uh, the organization's kind of like director and deputy director, one of its high-ranking station officers, and an ex-agent who is now a U.S. senator. So she tries to uh, start digging into which of those is sort of pulling the strings, and in doing so breaks out noted Mission Impossible villain Damian Lake, himself an ex-station chief who has been institutionalized for quite some time after the death of all of his, his entire staff, basically who were ostensibly investigating this company, this same corporation, Titanic holdings, Titanic holdings, because baby, this is just the tip of the iceberg. So true. She, she plays like a bit of a cat and mouse game with him before it becomes clear that 
he is not a victim of this conspiracy, but is himself an active kind of participant or player. So she goes to America and makes contact with one of X-14's old buddies and fellow spies who she uses to kind of keep tabs on what Arc-7 is doing while also feeding them information as she chases down uh, some secret information that he had there, which she eventually learns is that he <laughs> saw something that made him suspicious at the Watergate Hotel in 1972. <laughs> A truly wild reveal. And so basically she she learns that he saw an uh, uh, the, the other ex-operative there, the other dead ex-operative there, and was like, what's that guy doing here? And then realized later that he was basically like setting up the burglars in the Watergate scandal to be caught. And that information was now being used to like secretly blackmail the president of the United States, one Richard Nixon. Yes. The, there's, <laughs> I'll come back to Nixon. Um, <laughs> we all she, do. She uh, basically elicits kind of the the sympathy of Colt, the field agent who has been trying to track her down this whole time and who has kind of had some flags of his own go up about things that don't seem to be adding up for him, convinces him to help her fake her own death, um, which causes the agency's director, Director Manning, who had faked his own death, <laughs> to come out of hiding uh, revealing himself as uh, Dupree. Uh, he, he was Dupree. Sure. Yeah. The the one who betrayed her and the last person of the four that she would have ever suspected. So she gets her revenge by getting him to explain his evil plot, which is to be a modern espionage agency. Um and then she kills him and goes to chillax on the beach. Right. And that his plot was basically to be like a shadow government. Yeah. Yeah. So, boy, where to begin? <laughs> I guess just quickly, there are some crazy lines of dialogue uh, around the Nixon thing. The I wish I understood the like American fascination with Nixon still at this point. <laughs> well, you're not fascinated with Nixon? I mean, I guess I'm fascinated with Nixon. I don't know. There just there's a line where she says you're a crook that I was like, <laughs> what a crazy I wanted him to say. He was, I wanted him to be like mumbling as she walked over. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's a crazy line of dialogue that Oh, I just, yeah. Can you imagine if they made a movie of this and that line stayed? <laughs> and yet I'm also like, but maybe it would? Right. Would it? I don't know. Right. I know would what you it? mean. The whole, yeah, it like, it jumps the shark a little bit for me when Nixon comes onto the scene <laughs> and it the, the like, yeah, the you're a crook zinger is just like a little too writerly for my taste in a book that to this point has been more so about playing with both the kind of like the high like spy thriller like fantastical kind of like bond stuff and like basically trying to like blend that he he talks about it as um like James Bond written by John le Carre which I'm like that is the vibe that is like achieved pretty effectively there's like 
the the fantastical thriller espionage spy stuff and there's like the grounded political realist spy stuff and they kind of like mix together and i'm just like that line doesn't belong in either of those right it's like naked gun slash like that situation doesn't belong in either of those like james bond would never meet a real president i guess like i guess the thing is like if it was a fictional president it would make a lot more like i think it would feel a lot more natural yeah but also like you can't then you can't say you're a crook sure (laughs) captain hook so yeah the the nixon stuff yeah i'm just like it needs to either be a fake president or he needs to like never like it needs to not she just can't she can't talk to him yeah she can't like he yeah it it either needs to be a fake president or she can never even like be in the same room as him or else it certainly stretches credulity that she like successfully kidnaps the president by blackmailing the vice president like it's just yeah I, i don't know what it is it's like i mean i do know what it is it's a situation that feels like it belongs more in the James Bond camp, in which case I'm like, preserve my suspension of disbelief by using a fake president. And yet the like more realist, like smiley tone calls for it to be the real president, in which case I'm like, she can't talk to him. She needs like, she needs to like, it's, it's, it needs to be, especially for like this character who is, yeah, exactly. It's like, so this character is so much about like knowing that the like lower level bureaucrats are like much more powerful than they get credit for. And she needs to hear about it from someone who like basically no one would ever think would know. Right. So yeah, the Nixon of it all. Arc seven. <laughs> uh-huh. What's the seven about? Um, well, what's MI6 about? <laughs> Let's start there. MI6 is about how there are multiple divisions of military intelligence, which is like the origins of the MI, and five and six are the two that are like still around. Right. It's like how SEAL Team 6. These are geographic information. Geographic information? What? That's what like... So MI2 was geographic inf- geographical information <laughs> about the Americas, Latin countries, the Balkans, the Ottoman Empire, Transcaucasus, Arabia, Africa, less French and Spanish possessions. And then MI3 was geographical information on the rest of the European countries. And those were <laughs> like successively absorbed into MI6 eventually. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the existing ones are MI5 and MI6, which are basically like NSA and CIA, respectively. Right. Uh, honestly, MI5 is probably like the more because MI5 is counter espionage. Yeah, but MI5 is restricted to like in-country operations and MI6 is restricted to international operations. Right. And like MI6 isn't allowed to operate in the uk except under mi5's like supervision which is similar to how like the cia is right. not allowed to operate in the U- uh, u.s right i want to work in mi9 so- <laughs> postal censorship <laughs> <laughs> so arc seven i want to know what the seven is about is that maybe it's like the g7 like those are the allies who participate sure but no but was the g7 a thing in the 70s the g70s I don't is it, know. Like, isn't Russia one of the G7? Not anymore. 
Right, but it was the G eight or the G. It was originally the G six. It's like a Wikipedia. Canada, France, Germany, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the United States. The concept... With the EU as a non-enumerated member. The concept of a forum for the capitalist world's major industrialized country emerged before the 1973 oil crisis. I was going to say, G7 formed March 25th, 1973. So, is that on purpose? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I, I usually don't like in spy fiction when they have a fictional agency like this because it just makes me have so many questions about like right. the logistics of such an agency where it's like which countries which countries are like willing participants basically and which ones are not and like like is if it is the G7 then I'm like Japan is in on this, huh? Like it seems it seems pretty white <laughs> right for for Japan to be participating. And like I don't know, it's it's the same like Mission Impossible kind of skates by with how sort of like fanciful Mission Impossible movies are, but it is just like the exact same kind of thing where I'm like on whose authority basically like who where where did you get your mandate? Right. I have a similar question about arc seven which was kind of nagging me throughout except then at the end like when the director reveals his plot i'm kind of like yeah exactly yeah, like, aren't you like, doing this already well well yeah i was like the, this seems like the kind of thing that arc seven would be formed as a result of so if arc seven doesn't already solve these problems then how does like how does arc seven work basically like it's it feels like this should be about a like MI6 CIA like joint task force who are basically like conspiring to start arc 7. Right. I mean and be like we're freeing ourselves from like bureaucratic control. We're going to decide like what operations we take on. We're going to like be the arbiters of like global peace basically. Yeah, because there is, like, sort of an implicit, like, lack of oversight. She talks in the first issue, but it's, like, every op is a black op. Every dollar is, like, a secret dollar. But then, like, the one U.S. senator who is an ex-agent is, like, very much involved. And it seems, like, involved in a, like, official capacity. And it just raises questions, like, in that same conversation where the the director says a very true thing where he's like no one gets mad when we like make like make the shah of iran like dance on our puppet strings why are the prime minister and the president like out of bounds which i'm like that makes that makes good like logical sense to me for this like character's perspective and then velvet is like well they're on our side and i'm like whose side right and <laughs> like, i'm like whose, whose side are you on i did like, like i get it Jen, like bit of the a, allies yeah yeah i had a little bit of like it that did like hit me weird it's like really like velvet feels that way but the president who you just said was a crook they're on mm-hmm. our side like i don't think that's yeah it it is i get what you're saying it is kind but, of yeah, it weird just, that it's like especially because he's like Like, you could, I guess the idea is, like, there's an agency within the agency, but it's, like, the agency is kind of, like, already doing this to some extent. Or or it seems like the agency should, 
yeah, like I said, it seems like the exact problem that a group like Arc 7 would be formed <laughs> to address. Right. I also do just like always feel like when you have a fictional agency that's not like clearly acting in one nation's interests, then you leave a lot of like potential sources of conflict on the table that, for example, like uh, like the smiley books do well like uh queen and country does really well as inspired by the tv show the sandbaggers which does it really well where these are all about like mi6 and a lot of the times like the conflict comes from like we want to do this thing it is like the right thing for us to do in our capacity as as, like agents of the british government but the U.S. doesn't want us to do it. And we have like the special relationship, quote unquote, with the right. U.S. Or or like the U.S. does want us to do it, but they don't know about this deal that we've got with like this other country that we can't do it. And so how are we going to not do it without it looking like we're choosing to not do it? Like it's it's the source of like a lot of that kind of like backroom, like sort of politicking. Not that I think that Velvet is the kind of book where I'm like, this needs more backroom politicking. Sure. <laughs> but I, yeah, it, it again is just like one of those places where as much as I think that this does really successfully walk the like Bond smiley line and like manage that balance, it is another sort of point of friction where I'm like, if you're going to have a fictional agency, then I like almost want it to be less realistic in terms of those, those considerations. I mean, it all, it is pretty unrealistic. Like there's, (laughs) I think in like an implicit sort of like, and you know, it's kind of interesting that it gets into sort of the money and the funding, especially Mm -hmm. the idea that it's sort of like instability profiteering, because, like, that kind of makes, like, that is maybe how they would make their money in, like, a real world is, like, they're basically, like, yeah. insider trading with themselves <laughs> in order to, like, you know, seize the, like, business opportunities that their activities create. Like, it's, so like, I mm-hmm. think there is, like, things like who do they answer to and who is funding them and things like that, like, those aren't ever really taken into consideration. And there is kind of an implication that they are an independent organization of some kind that they are not like a branch of the government in the way that like, you know, the CIA is. Yeah, certainly. And so, you know, it never really bothered me too much, but I guess, you know, having it end with things being so directly linked to like the idea of the agency and like the mission statement of the agency, because we Mm -hmm. never really get like, like you said, we never get a full answer on like what their purview is. And so talking about like this is what we should be doing is like, what are you doing now? <laughs> because mm-hmm. the only thing he says is Arc 7 was created to root out those who would do harm to civilization. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> Which is like who's whose civilization? I mean, it's basically just like what the CIA was doing, but like yeah, I mean, it is basically just the, yeah. the CIA. But, so, but then I'm like, but then so just like be the CIA, <laughs> because otherwise I'm like, why? Especially like when they're on their sort of like manhunt or woman hunt, I should say, really, and they're like going like all over the world and like leaving corpses everywhere. 
and and have like a bit more of like the kind of like grounded thing to it and this is also partly like just like me being a person with like experience in organizational administration i'm just like someone's gonna be getting a report that is gonna make them like really unhappy (laughs) that they weren't talked to before this stuff all happened yeah there there is the whole thing of like they shot a missile that's too crazy for arc seven it's like but we will like for us we will shoot up an apartment building or like crash a bunch (laughs) of cars and blow them up like that's normal yeah i think i think that like part of this for me is that brubaker like talks in interviews about how the sandbaggers was in some ways like the original inspiration for this which i assume you have never seen the sandbaggers slash possibly never heard of it never heard of it I think I might have talked about it on the podcast before. Anyways, great, great, like, British uh, espionage show from the 70s also, which is, like, you, you half the time you, like, don't follow the, like, spies when they go into the field. The main character is, like, the director of intelligence, and you just, like, go with him from, like, meeting to meeting to, like, secure the okay um, to, to, like, do the operation. And then, like, the, the like the dramatic climax is that he has like a very tense meeting with the permanent undersecretary. And then the denouement is like that. He like calls in his like right hand field operative and is like, we've got the green light. <laughs> and then like the guy leaves and it's like two days later, bring, bring it's done. <laughs> Good. And then like hangs up and then it's like roll credits. <laughs> so that, that is like so very interested in these questions or in those those like sorts of you know the the like how do those decisions get made and so to like have him invoke it and then spend no time at all on those questions i'm like that's very interesting but the specific origin story is that there's one episode where that main character's secretary is like i'm getting married which of course means i must quit my job because it's the 70s um and spends an episode on him being like gotta hire a new secretary <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy um it is crazy but he basically was like so i was watching this because the sandbaggers is also a huge inspiration for queen and country by greg rucka his collaborator and greg rucka was writing queen and country and ed brubaker was like i'm obsessed with this book it's so good and greg rucka was like i'm glad you think so because i'm writing sandbaggers fan fiction you should go watch the sandbaggers <laughs> and so he was watching this episode and he was like Oh, like when you're a secretary in an intelligence agency, that actually is a role that carries like a ton of responsibility and the qualifications are very unique. And like the vetting process is also very unique because in some ways, like you you have to not only like read the same reports that like the director ultimately reads, but you have to like edit them to like flag the important information. So it's like you probably spend more time reading the like most classified and sensitive documents than anybody else in the agency. You're in the most secure files area. Yeah, you're in the most secure files area for sure. Which and and then that was basically like those that's like a role that doesn't really ever get credit and then like oh, money penny. Oh, like the secretary in like crime fiction generally, which I think I've talked before about how like crime and espionage are basically cousins. And then, you know, that the sort of like rabbit trail goes on from there. Right. Right. Um, 
I mean, what what else to say about the contents of this book? It is like I think we've talked, you know, we've talked about similar things before, but like I I was like, I don't have a ton to talk about because I'm just like this is good. Um, we haven't talked a ton about the character. No, and I was about to say like as I as I alluded to earlier, like it does feel like a more mature work to me. I think, especially having read incognito, like not that long ago. And it's not like he's so much older, like this fatal starts, I think like three years or no, no, it starts one year after, um, incognito bad influences. I mean, it is really, it is, it is crazy to think about. I think part of it (laughs) is just the perspective of the character that like, you know, coming from a very serious, very competent character versus a like very volatile, like mm-hmm. silly character, angry young man. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, yeah, but, I just, yeah. Cognito just continues to baffle me on many counts. It's, yeah, and so it's like I do think that part of it is that Brew Baker himself was like, I'm now a person like over forty. <laughs> and and maybe is a bit more kind of like sober minded about it in in that way because it yeah i don't know it just it is a book where aging is just like really a big part of it but is it like i you know i keep thinking about sort of the idea like you mentioned earlier of like leaving stuff on the table like it is kind of about that but it's like sh- even though she says, like, I'm rusty, like, we never really see her be rusty. And, well, like, you know, because yeah. she's I essentially, mean, what, like, in her like, early 40s? Yeah. Like, we don't really get that impression. Yeah, it, it, at least in terms of, like, her competency relative to the, like, men in their primes who are sent after her. Her physical competency in particular. Yeah, there's, there's, so... Yeah, there's certainly a never not not a sense of like, wow, she hasn't used these skills in years. Yeah, um, and like we don't even like. But there are. I think if this was a movie, we'd get the scene where it's like she still goes to the gym every day and like does a billion. Kicks. Well, we do get her uh, doing topless yoga. Sure. <laughs> or I guess it's probably more likely to be Pilates at this uh, <laughs> this stage. Sure. Calisthenics. Digging into the history of Pilates and jazzercise. <laughs> Surely not jazzercise. But, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I feel like a lot of the things that are sort of, like, subtextually presented as thematically important or thematically resonant elements of the character are rarely explored within the text of the comic, which is maybe just, like, more, like, <laughs> subtext that I'm used to from a comic book. But, I mm-hmm. like, it it does feel like buried pretty deep. Like, I don't even think it's presented subtextually really. I I do think it's presented subtextually. I think it's actually done quite, I guess I would say like artfully at points where like, she's kind of nursing like a shoulder sprain from the first issue, like the whole book and, and not in a way where they often will like draw attention to it of having her be like, but like, they will they will have her kind of like clearly sort of like massaging the same spot 
during a conversation with somebody else. Like she she accumulates these these yeah, just just some kind of like wear and tear that is brought up like fairly frequently in terms of like the art and very rarely in terms of the either like narration or the like conversations with the other characters or things like that. But which I don't really have any doubt is there because Brubaker has like either specifically requested it or like periodically gives notes to be like, by the way, like just like as a general keep in mind, like it's a person in her early forties who's doing like a lot of very like strenuous physical stuff. And I want that to like reflect in, in the comic, like kind of over the course of things. And I think that like more sort of generally it's about like kind of the accumulation of those sorts of things. It's about like the weight of years. Yes. I agree with that. Which is like the kind of thing that you like, I don't really want her to be like, Oh, the, like the days are long, but the years are short. Like how, how the time has flown and like, aren't I, you know, and, and we get a little bit of it. Like when she, when she like reflects about how like I didn't used to like she exploited my sympathy. I didn't used to like have sympathy. Yeah, that stuff like, I we, think we, works really well. And like stuff, you know, stuff relating to her relationships and mm-hmm. things like that. I think that does work really well. I guess. Yeah. yeah, I guess it is maybe more just that I want it to be a little more textual that like, you know, I guess there are moments where it like informs her decision making and sort of directly informs the plot in that way. Like the stuff with the the what's her name? The the waitress who was previously Oh yes, uh Tanner. Something Tanner. Rachel. Rachel Tanner. Something like that. That that character I think like that's a that's a good sort of mm-hmm. approach to it. Yeah. I th- I think if there's a spot where some of that stuff could be front and centered a bit more. It's that we don't get very much of her one-on-one with the director, who is a character who she at several points is like, he's my mentor. He's like a father figure to me, et cetera, et cetera. We don't really have many scenes where we are shown that like closeness and intimacy rather than being told about it. And I think if we did have some more of that kind of throughout the comic, then the tone of that like final confrontation is very different. And also I do think that that is the kind of setting in which like reflecting through like dialogue about how she has become a different person or, you know, having like part one of, one of the things of the conceit is that like not very many people knew her in her like old life and are still around And so when we have one of those characters who is one of the few people and they're described as having a very close relationship, but we don't get much of them like kind of one on one in in times that aren't very plot driven, then we don't have space for those kinds of conversations to unfold that I think would put some of those themes more kind of in the foreground through the dialogue. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's just like foregrounding those elements more. And it's like. You know, I guess that I do want some subtlety to it. And, like, I think that that, like, <laughs> is ultimately successful. That, like, he's telling a pretty straightforward spy story, but then he's layering these subtextual elements on top. I, mm-hmm. I do would like them. I would like them to be a little more foregrounded, though. And also, like, 
given how much of her mission is like document based and like research based, mm-hmm. I almost want like more secretary stuff. <laughs> like I want more like administrative. I have like mastered like filing. <laughs> like I do kind of yeah. want it to be like I've mastered filing. <laughs> I was just telling someone literally this morning about uh, the film, the hit feature film, The Accountant. <laughs> she talked <laughs> about describing lot. it. Yeah, I sure. If they were like, "How many times have you seen this movie?" and I was like, "Once." It's once very memorable. <laughs> no, I saw it. I saw it. We were, full, we were locked full on we for real. In. But anyways. And in that, I was like, there are scenes where he is shown doing accounting that are presented with the same like intensity as the scenes where he is killing people. That's exactly (laughs) And that's like a big, those, those are the scenes where I'm like, this is so good. And I do kind of want the same thing where it's like, you know, we spend so much of the, of the book seeing like. (laughs) <laughs> we we spend so much of the the book seeing her be like these are the like i'm i'm an extremely competent person i'm an exceptionally capable person here is me being like exceptionally capable at violence i agree that i would also like some scenes where it's like yeah but for the last 10 years the skills that she has been using and honing and are sharpest are like managerial and administrative <laughs> i kind of i agree that i want to see her do like like get get velvet in the archives for an issue <laughs> yeah, and like it's just i think it is like exciting and would make sense because the book is about like i have left this life behind i'm i'm in a different universe than i was and i'm now mm-hmm. like returning to my old life that it, i do want the weight of the experience to mean something a little more and also just the idea mm-hmm. that this person is so competent that of course she would also be highly competent, and you know I think we pretty much hear that explicitly. Yeah. That of course she would be yeah, competent. Everyone's at, like she's amazing at her job. Yeah, <laughs> and so I do want that to matter a little more, as it does in the account where it's like the fact that he is an accountant does matter a lot. Whereas in Velvet, it's, it's like the prime. It is as important to the plot as the fact that he's an assassin. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with Velvet, it's like if she had been working in a shop or whatever for 15 years yeah. like there you know obviously there are some relational things that would have to shift but the fact that she was in this role which is a very important role and like a very sort of both textually and subtextually very important role we don't really see much of how her being in that role affects her in any way other than it being like the old life almost mm-hmm yeah, especially like because we do have that one reflection scene where she is like it was originally supposed to be temporary, but like I never really thought about going back and it's like yeah, part of that is because of like you know, the the clear trauma that we get from her one sort of like attempted excursion back into the field, but the other part of it is that like she's good at her job and she enjoys the work. Like that is also a factor. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I see that you've discovered something. I'm just going to quote from this article. Okay, hold on. I have I have three. Uh, no, I have two related thoughts to what you were just saying that okay. I want to share. Okay. And then a third that I will share after you read that. So I think that part of the reason that like it has the stuff that we've been talking about has a hard time coming through is that there are two sort of like recurring ideas that are actually in contradiction to each other. One of those is 
it's been too long and you've all forgotten who I really am. And the other is I'm no longer the same person that I was. And so it's hard to like those can both be true, but it's hard to emphasize both of them like in a way that that makes them both satisfying. Right. Which I think is kind of what the book struggles with at points. Yeah, it becomes more about her. It's like the back in the saddle thing. Yeah, very much so. The other thing that I think is interesting is that Brubaker, well, he made it a Cold War book for a lot of reasons, but one that he talks about all the time is basically like spy stories are boring once you get cell phones and the internet because like you don't the like constant anywhere. instant communication yeah like that's that's boring so i wanted to to like be set in a time when you couldn't like rely on technology in that way and you had to kind of like get out there and and pound pavement and do the real work so to speak and also another thing that i like is sort of that it's like you can tr- you can trick people and like institutions more easily, but it also sort of yeah. requires an element of skill that, you know, this, the stuff about her sort of flying to 12 different countries. I like, because it's like that wouldn't mm-hmm. really work in a modern day setting. Like it's harder to sort of right fake that. And, and even, even just the, like the thing, like the passport swap thing that she yeah. does where it's like, I just bought myself like three days. Whereas like fast forward, like, not even 15 years and it's like you just bought yourself like four hours (laughs) but but i think that that all like i think if he had applied some of that same ethos to some of the more like i guess paperwork oriented (laughs) (laughs) elements of it like but it's true it does (laughs) yeah in the same way that the account sounds dumb yes but like there is that issue where it opens up and she's like i'm undercover as a temp like doing like corporate espionage where i'm like this is good this is good and even like the one scene it's like two panels when she introduces that like xkgb guy where she's like he's like a private consultant now and is like equally likely to be stealing a toothpaste formula as like helping a dictator like run his war. And there's a, a, like a thing of him like with an overhead of like a toothpaste formula and he's got like a pointer and it's like in a boardroom being like, as you can see, like this is the formula where I'm like, I don't know. That's just, that's just like a fun kind of like side of things that I would enjoy seeing more of, and Velvet is like kind of uniquely positioned to provide more of that. And the character, it's just like it's a it's a great character, and so you're sort of very willing to go with any sort of you know, you're willing to go like you're willing to see the toothpaste formula velvet issue. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, all right, read your read your thing. Okay, so this is from an article from September 2021 saying where Gavin O'Connor says that they have just like closed the deal on doing an accountant sequel. I think I texted you about I, this at the time. I think you did. <laughs> but what really is great is this quote. Here's what we've got. So I've always wanted to do three because the second one's going to be more with we're going to integrate his brother into the story. So there'll be more screen time for Bernthal on that in the second one. And then the third movie... I thought mo- died in the first I one. I kind of thought that as well. But anyways. And then the third movie's going to be... I call it Rain Man on Steroids. The third movie's going to be the two brothers, this odd couple. The third one is going oh to be a buddy picture. Gosh. And as soon as I saw Rain Man on Steroids, 
I was like, I need this so desperately. Oh, that is wild. That's wild. Berenthal, I, I feel like we have also talked about this and maybe disagree. I feel like Berenthal, bad casting as Ben Affleck's brother. Um, Let me look at this. Uh, speaking, since we did Time at Your Mother Corner last week, um, uh-huh. Joe Manganiello showed up in I Met Your Mother, like virtually unrecognizable. Sure. Two guys who played the Punisher? Is that true? They just come to mind. Like, they would be great brothers. And maybe are. Yeah, they would. I don't know. I feel like John Bernthal is just always in, like, like him being in Wind River is very funny and very on point. Like, he is sort of in those, like, mid-budget, visible, but also, like, you could easily go without having heard of it. (laughs) Yeah. John, Joe Joe Manganiello, popular fan casting as the Punisher, not uh, having actually ever played the Punisher. Yeah. John Barenthal, to me, who am I thinking of that he looks like? He kind of looks like a Diaz brother. Do you know those? He looks to me like, that. who's that guy? Barry... Sonnenfeld. No, Barry K, Irish guy. Oh, Barry... Barry Keehan or something like that. <laughs> I know, a Druig. <laughs> Please, the, the Joker. Joker. Yeah. <laughs> he John Bernthal to me looks like aged up that guy. I don't really see it. Uh the ears are a little too prominent maybe on up, on Bernthal to Nate like Diaz. totally UFC fighter. Who Diaz Nick or Nate. Nate? Well, they're brothers, but Oh, there is one called Nick also. <laughs> okay. He's, I can kind of see it. I think that's the that's what I'm looking for. But yes, Nate sure. and Nick are both UFC fighters or former UFC fighters. Who plays Tom Hardy's brother in Warrior? That's a great question. Because I'm like, is that Bernthal? <laughs> Warrior 2011 film. Oh, it's of course Joel Edgerton. And that movie is directed by Gavin O'Connor. <laughs> Let's go! <laughs> that feels like we should end the episode, yeah, but we exactly of course can't. <laughs> We can't because I have a mild oh Joe Grillo uh, sure I mean Frank Grillo is also also in that movie. The, like how is John Bernthal not in Den of Thieves or is he? Also Nick Nolte got an Academy Award. I don't nomination. think so. Nick Nolte got for Warrior. Nick Nolte got an Academy Award. Oh for Warrior. Interesting. Wow. I don't remember that. I do want to talk about casting for this movie something i usually don't like to do <laughs> i mean for this for, vel- for this like book velvet? for velvet yeah because yeah i'm usually pretty low on fan casting as a thing but there were just several points at this where i was like you know who would be perfect for this guy uh-huh this guy uh-huh. <laughs> do you have anyone who like instantly comes to mind for any of the major characters well like <sighs> it's also hard because the like it's like, what nationality are any of these people? Extremely hard to tell because they are all written like Americans, but I assume are not all supposed to be Americans, right. except for one guy who's like, hello, governor. <laughs> the, did you like the one very funny bit where it to demonstrate the that Russians someone, have the backwards R's? <laughs> yeah, to demonstrate yes. that someone is speaking in a Russian accent. This is Cyrillic actually, characters like, sorry. Yeah. Well, sorry, ma'am. No problem. Except again, they're written like Americans. Where one of them is like, "No worries, (laughs) no biggie." (laughs) 
<laughs> We're chilly. It's chill. <laughs> yeah. That's the same um, thing. That, that I did flag that slash like at one point I was basically just like, who's doing the lettering on this? Because they are putting in work. It's of course Chris Eliopoulos, who is a great letterer. But there was one panel in particular where Velvet breaks somebody's wrist that the lettering effect made me wince like I would like like whenever people break bones oh, I know in like a TV about, show yeah. or movie, I'm always like, oh, and I did that. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I have never reacted like that to like comic book violence. And it was like exclusively because of like how good the lettering was. Yeah, I and now exactly I want to find that panel. I know the one you're talking about for sure. I will. I will make sure to post that because I was like. That is like one of the best lettering decisions, I guess, is how I would phrase it. Like complimenting the art so, so effectively. Like I rarely am impacted at that kind of like visceral level by a still silent image. (laughs) And it was it was extremely effective. Um, But you have some fan casting that you want to. uh... I just I just have a couple of people who come to mind so i mean you know sean harris for for damian lane (laughs) did eventually surface but there is someone else i don't think it was him there was a character at one point where i was like this guy's stellan skarsgård sure was it maybe who would uh, that have been could it have been burke her sort of first helper no no, I, it was it was after she went back to London because there was something about the mention of Copenhagen that I was like, <laughs> hmm, Scandies. <laughs> and then someone there just was like a panel where I was like, he kind of looks like Stellan Skarsgård. And then I was like, Stellan Skarsgård could do a good job with this uh, with this guy, I think. Sure. Uh, I'm not. It's not coming to me instantly. Um, I also had someone for the director where I was like. I think this guy just basically has already been cast. I did think I was like there as a character actor that looks like this I'm, guy. I'm looking it up because I was so I was like, I know exactly who this guy is. He's almost um, what's his name? Who uh, 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 is no longer with us, sadly. So you cannot be in the hmm. television series. But James Avery, uh, you know what I mean? A James who? James Avery, aka Uncle Phil. Oh, oh, oh. As as the director? Yeah. That's a good casting. Yeah, I like that. I was thinking of Fred Melamed. Okay, let me look this up. Here, I'll I'll IMDB you him right now. <laughs> right? It's um, like Cy he basically Yeah, yeah, yeah. He basically is like already Shh. drawn <laughs> to like be him. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> So yeah, there there was that. I feel like at one point I was like, is he supposed to be British? Is he a Stephen Fry type? I don't think Stephen Fry can really grow the beard to do that. But you know, there's prosthetics out there. <laughs> but I yeah, I I think that this was also partially sparked by he. I don't think he was like, I wanted Velvet to be a Diane Lane type. But he in again, in like all of the interviews when he's talking about how like important it was to him for her to be like a middle aged woman, basically was like, oh, Diane Lane basically talks about how like when she turned 40. Now, the only role for her is like to play somebody's mom. Right. 
I think it would be cool for there to be more. This was again where I was kind of like, huh, he's he's thinking about like aging a bit here. <laughs> he's yeah. like, I'm now like also over 40 and like people in their 40s are interesting yeah. <laughs> and like have full and rich lives and there should be more like roles for for women in their 40s. Yeah, and the, the person I thought about who like is 40 but doesn't really play 40 yet is was Anne Hathaway. Mm, that would be interesting. Like is kind of is weirdly kind of age appropriate, but doesn't necessarily feel super no, age appropriate. Yeah. Like doesn't necessarily have like the sort of burden of years kind of feel to her. Yeah, I mean, again, like Charlize makes sense to me, but I'm also like, is that just because of Atomic Blonde? Yeah, Charlize is also like I think weirdly kind of young, but she is in her mid forties for sure. She's forty seven. I think she might. Yeah, okay, I was going to say, I was like, I think she's getting closer to 50. I do feel like she has recently sort of settled into a bit more of, like, like just a little bit older, basically. Yeah, like, I mean, playing Megyn Kelly is a huge, <laughs> sure. is a huge shift in that direction. Right. But, like, yeah, she certainly has the, like, I think even in, like, <laughs> like as Cypher <laughs> in the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, I think although she is, Cypher is weirdly, like, a character who feels like she was written to be, like, 21. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. But, like, the way she, she presents She has, like, child prodigy movie, <laughs> energy. Yeah. Or even, like, the old guard where it's, like, she looks young but is playing old. Well, yeah, weight of, weight of years again. I feel like... Even like I guess it's post Fury Road that she sort of like settles into being a little bit more of a like not elder stateswoman, but yeah, I like, like Fury Road the, is the, probably like, the last vet. time she is like playing like under thirty five or whatever. Right. Yeah. I guess that character could be older, but doesn't necessarily feel it. Uh, do you have any others? Um, no, I mean, all the men, like, look like the same person. Yeah, like, you could throw the classic men in there. Yeah. I mean, Chris Evans as Colt feels, like, weirdly fitting. Sure. I I would buy that. But, I mean, I don't know if we've seen the gray man. I don't know that I (laughs) necessarily want him. We have seen the gray man. I don't know that I necessarily want him getting back into the espionage game at this point. That movie is horrifically bad. I I feel like Chris, I don't know what is it is it that the first thing that he did after Captain America was Knives Out, and now it's he's sort like of the like a-hole. not not that like oh, now he's the a hole so much as but like she always kind of was. Yeah, truly, it it does feel like it was like oh man, Chris is like off the leash. He's right. like he's back. That he was he's sort of like ready for anything into. Yeah, where it's like it's it's about to be like Chris's time, and then it was like, oh, actually, never mind. It's Brad Pitt's time again. <laughs> sure. Well, it was Brad Pitt's last year, famously. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, but also kind of not. Um, anyways, yeah. I mean, I don't know whose time it is. I guess. I mean, I feel like it's always Chalamet's time. I mean, that's very different. <laughs> <laughs> it is very different. I'm just going to Google 2022 action movies and sort of get a sense of whose time it is. It, yeah, it they're they're just like post End Game. There was a kind of like there's a, power there's a lot of Marvel actors 
It's funny because it hasn't really filled on either side in some ways where it, it felt like it was like, here come like a few red hot free agents who are like suddenly able to do whatever they want. What like, you know, what worlds are they about to build for us? And it was also like the, the faces of the MCU are out of the picture who is going to kind of like step up and become the new face. And then the answer to that was nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, RIP Chadwick Boseman. Um, Yes. I mean, that's very devastating, devastating blow in terms of like true star power to like continue to carry the franchise. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the answer for both is Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're making extraction to, you should watch (laughs) Spiderhead. And he's, did you Black know that? Hat, famously. Sure. Did you know that he is going to be Immortan Joe and Furiosa? I did not know that. Is there, so apparently there's also talk that he may be within the next like few years is going to like retire from acting or like take right. a big yes. step I back. Just saw, I just saw this the other day that he is taking a break because he found out that his like is, national geographic show like brought to light medical information or something yes the what, i did not read the article or like do any further digging but basically that he is going to take an acting break because he has discovered that he is genetically predisposed to alzheimer's right and so i guess it's just like taking a break to live his life good call because that, that will be a real vacuum. But even then, I, I'm also sort of like, not that Chris Hemsworth like carries the the anything for the reaction to Love and Thunder. Like, I think sure. YTT has like pretty squarely been the one who has been asked to hold that L. Sure. But I am sort of like, are people a little bit over Thor? And the reason Absolutely. that I found out about this kind of like pending step back for him was that he there was like some interview where he was sort of like basically he was like i think thor should die in the next thor movie (laughs) i mean thor kind of should have died in the last thor movie thor probably should have died in the last thor movie so again it's like although yeah his his i would say at least in terms of number of projects he has been the most prolific of like the Marvel stars. Benedict Cumberbatch is also in a weird role where I it's mean, like Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't really count as a Marvel star. I don't think. Yeah. I think, I guess that's what it is, is that he it's like Marvel playing, dude. playing Dr. Strange feels like his like fun hobby. Yeah. It's <laughs> like doing his crazy American accent. <laughs> Do you feel his American accent is crazy? I don't know. It just is weird. <laughs> like it kind of hits the ear in a weird way. <laughs> it's he's he's a bit housey for sure. I guess it's Jake Gyllenhaal's time. Sorry to circle back. Ambulance for sure. <laughs> We've all taken a ride in the ambulance. So good, an ambulance. Heck, I mean, freaking uh, source code. <laughs> source code whips. Anyway, <laughs> source code does whip. This this movie talk though does bring me to another just like general thing are you bonded are you bondable have you, have I seen uh, have you no been time bound? to die or have i seen bound just, what is this question um this this question is what's your bond experience are you into bond i've only seen casino royale quantum of solace skyfall and no time to die you haven't seen specter no, you turned me off of Spectre famously. It's terrible. By giving me your text message <laughs> review, which I like 
is like very much imprinted on my mind that one of <laughs> that's funny that like one of the like an important plot point is predicated on the threat of Bond going face blind. <laughs> yes, I think about that very often. He's like too. strapped into a chair, looking at uh, Lea Sedu, and then uh, Christoph Waltz is basically like. Bond, you're going to give me what I want That's or else this needle is going to go into your face and you won't recognize your love. That was a good Christoph Waltz. <laughs> Thanks. I do my best. Pretty much same. I have seen a couple of the... I was thinking about this because I was I like, like, I to. think I'm a little too young for the Brosnans, right. which means that you're definitely too young right. for the Brosnans. And then I just like, this seems like something that our father who are in heaven, but at, who actually is in London. Is he a Bond guy? No. He doesn't like, like, action movies. But he, I don't know. I feel like he has I don't know seen he and likes. is, like, affectionate about the Connery Bonds. <laughs> That's a vibe that could be true. It's, it's, I have, like, some deeply, like, buried memory of him being, like, quite into Bond. But... Or, or at least he is definitely the kind of guy who, like, on a Saturday afternoon, if any Bond movie comes on, he would, like, that's where he would, like, stop his channel surfing. I don't have any. Like, he would let any given Bond movie play for, like, at least 35 minutes. I don't have any takes on this, I'm afraid. I'll, uh, I'll have to ask him about that. I was just curious because, obviously, like, Bond is kind of a natural comparison point for this book, and yeah. yet... Brubaker. I don't think it's that Bondy, really, but like some of the not. dressing is. Yeah, I I was just interested to find how he doesn't like actively distance it from Bond per se, but like he rarely brings up Bond himself, like in his in his answers when people ask him specifically about Bond stuff, he kind of like will will give like the stock sort of like one sentence like oh money penny what if she was a secret agent and then we'll kind of like move away from it so this book i feel like has kind of a weird relationship with bond right yeah i mean like it doesn't like you know we've sort of talked about the idea that's like it's closer to a 70s political espionage thriller it's closer to a tinker tailor soldier spy kind of like Mm -hmm. process of the espionage world because like i mean like I think the very nature of the sort of like internal, like I'm fighting against my organization mm-hmm. or like I'm like being kind framed. of paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that maybe is that's why Bondy I also think of mission impossible. So much. It's true. That's very true. <laughs> uh, because man, how many, how many times has uh, Ethan Hunt been declared a rogue agent? I ask so you. True. How many times has ghost protocol been invoked? Um, How many? <laughs> I think one. The last, last thing before we can move towards <laughs> a bit more of a wrap up that I want to observe about is this book is predicated on the thought of like secretaries don't get enough credit, especially in an organization like a major espionage organization. But I feel like if there's like another area that is underexplored, it's sort of like every other secretary. <laughs> Who's right. not velvet where the whole thing is like, oh, like there's actually a lot more to these women than 
like someone might think based on like their title or how they're like kind of socially perceived. They all like they have to have these like special qualifications. They have to like pass this security clearance, et cetera, et cetera. But then it's like but but Velvet is like the remarkable one. And there are a couple other ones who sort of like come into the book briefly, but are just sort of like there and then gone. Yeah. I mean, I think that he kind of explores that idea a bit with the the wife character, the Russian or Yugoslavian mm-hmm. wife character, and the Rachel Tanner, we think, <laughs> towards the end. Like, I think yeah. that idea of sort of like the place of a woman within this sort of web is explored a little mm-hmm. I'm, bit, I'm but mostly, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, I'm mostly thinking of like, Early in the first issue, there's like a line where one of the other secretaries says to Velvet about the death of X-14, the ladies' washroom is nothing but crying secretaries right now, where I was like, but isn't the whole premise of this book that like (laughs) these these women are all like also very like, you know, competent? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And not, not that crying is incompetent. But it kind of like I, diminishes I, the other sector. Like it, it does, and and again, like I think this is where you're, what you were getting at earlier that it's sort of serving two masters. Is like it does have to distinguish Velvet as being different in the way, in mm-hmm. almost like an incognito way, where it's like I have been shackled to this job that is not what I want to do or what my skills like make me capable of, and so she has to yeah. sort of be like stuck to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, it is also just sort of like an, another example of a bit of like the dichotomy t- that that or like some wrestling that the book does with Velvet's like femininity, where it's like, well, she can't be crying in the bathroom because that is like, you know, too girlish um, as compared to like, you know, as as illustrated by these other secretaries. But then I do feel like there are other aspects where like even the whole like the whole decision to like yes I'll take this like grieving mother to go and see her son is something that like not to say that a male character would never do that but the reasons that velvet does it I feel like are are reflecting a bit more of like a consideration of not like oh she has the soft heart of a woman she has like a mother's instinct or any because i don't think that she has any kind of like matronly instinct in that way but there is like an element of like caring and sort of like solidarity that she feels with this woman that that seemed like that whole segment would play very differently with a male character and i think that brew baker is like very conscious of that in in so far as like yeah, I guess I guess what I'm driving at here is that sometimes I think that Velvet, the comic, does a very good job of establishing Velvet as like a strong woman. And I think at other times it falls into the trap of like the strong female character that we've talked about recently, where it's like she's she's just like a man, but hot. And yeah. I would have sex with her. <laughs> I mean, that is a little bit of it. Like, I think there's he... a, I, that definitely is present, but it's not. It doesn't only... become overpowering. And, yeah. and like I said before, like, I think that it does kind of not even not even necessarily taking pains, but it does present men in the same way. Almost like it does if it doesn't sexualize men in that way, but it does sort of mm-hmm. like 
establish the idea that male sexuality is also like a part of the job in the same way that female sexuality would be. But you do mm-hmm. also have scenes that are like Velvet's getting ready to go on her mission and she is in her underwear, <laughs> like in garters. <laughs> yeah. Although I guess like I'm like, I guess I prefer that to the sort of like, I guess like, George R. R. Martin or like Stephen King school of like this woman is over 40 so she no longer has breasts she now has dugs and like I'm going to talk about like how she's like saggy and wrinkled a lot because she's not hot anymore yeah (laughs) so I'm like I guess if those are like the two extreme ends of the pole I would rather have it be like Velvet's 40 but she can get it yeah I mean it is like it's, it is, this is like, a, I think, a very like overused kind of phraseology, but it is very like male gaze. Like, and I think we sort of oh, talked yeah, about 100%. like, 100%. I think we talked about that a little more in depth in Fatal, like, not even artistically, but just like, I think it is hard for him to divorce himself from the idea of being a man viewing a woman rather than inhabiting a woman like internally. Yeah, I I am, at least in terms of, like, the visuals, a little bit hesitant to lay that entirely sure. at the feet of Brubaker. Sure. Like, I, I don't know that I think that the script is, like, she's nude. Like, we see her nipple. <laughs> I was, I did want to talk about, like, the silhouetted <laughs> nipple, which appears, like, five times. There are, there are a few nipples in this. Sean Phillips has been known to throw in some, some nips as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's like, it's it's not presented as like circumstantial matter of fact nudity. It's also not as like titillating as it could be, I guess. Right. I mean, some again, like the the naked Pilates, I think is meant to be like pretty titillating, but or like in general, I don't even think they're aware of it. But I think you know, like I think that that's what the idea of the male gaze is. Is like even if it's not being textually presented as titillating, like we are almost like, especially like the angles we view the character from, like I'm looking at this, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, she's getting ready and she's in her underwear. Like we are viewing the character through the eyes of someone else looking at her rather than like, like even when it's in the mirror, like we aren't really seeing the character viewing herself. Right. It's like over her shoulder. Yeah. It is as though we are like peeking in. Yeah. Yeah. She does also wear lingerie a lot or we're like shown her putting on lingerie that like she doesn't end up like <laughs> using <laughs> lingerie later on. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it is. It's even like. Sometimes it's even just like how it's colored where like and it's colored by a woman where where yeah like some of the silhouetting effect is achieved through like use of shadow and through through like colors where it's like you almost can't see but you can (laughs) (laughs) yeah which which is just interesting to me as well where I'm like I wonder to what extent that's like following basically like the guidelines that are laid out in the line art. I wonder whether those are artistic decisions that the colorist, um, again, Betty Brightweiser, who we've seen before, uh, in here is, is making herself. Yeah. I'm, I am, I am curious brackets blue or yellow or something. Whatever that means. 
very famous movies series sure. called I Am Curious. And then there's brackets and there's different colors. Right. was parodied in Superman girlfriend Lois Lane in the issue when she's turned into a black woman, which is titled I Am Curious brackets black. Whoa. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, we, just because we haven't really mentioned it much and I need to end this episode. But she does. She, like, has a famous or, like, a trademark skin tight leather ish suit. Right, that I stealth feel, suit. that I feel like isn't isn't really sexualized. Like I never really saw it in no. that way. In the way that often it's very like tactical. Yeah, in the way that often like a woman's skin tight superhero outfit would probably be sexualized mm-hmm. or like posed sexually. Like, and I think a big part of that is the coloring as well, where like, you know, it's not like accentuating the contours. Exactly. Yeah, like. You know, she's wearing all black. Like sometimes she just looks like a square or whatever. <laughs> a rectangle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't want to go on the art for too long, but it is like, it's not that it's jarring per se, but Epting is so much more photorealistic than Phillips, and so sometimes like we've now seen Brightweiser color both Epting and Phillips, and there were times where I was like. Ugh. <laughs> like it's too realistic. There are some, I mean, I, I I experienced that a lot with like facial expressions in like more realistic comics for sure. Mm-hmm. And they like she is always like really blushy. Like she has very rosy cheeks. Velvet does. Yeah, yeah, and some heavy brows. Yeah, but also like I do like like I think that Colt is very much like doing like a Steve McQueen. I just watched Bullet, so I know what Steve McQueen looks like. But um. Like, no, it's true, though. Like, they do, they, yeah. Which I think, it, they, it, which I think contributes to it feeling like a movie in that way, which yeah. I like. I, I feel like all of the men, like, all of the active service, like, field agent men are basically supposed to look like Robert Redford or Steve McQueen or, like, like 70s action stars basically yeah. and i think that they do look that way and i think that like even if they are sort of modeled which they probably are like i think Colt probably is modeled on steve queen pretty directly mm-hmm. but i like that that makes them look like real people like not that it yeah. looks not that it looks like a famous person but that it looks like a person yeah which is like and and distinct, which is very important for a book where there are so many men who are of like kind of the same type that distinguishing between them is not necessarily always super easy. <laughs> right. So the fact that they are made like visually distinct while still like looking like real people is good and important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Last thing, I She's a little too young for it right now, but Tatiana Maslany. Mm. Have you seen She-Hulk? No. I've seen the gif where She-Hulk claps. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, surprisingly major plot point uh, that really challenged my suspension of disbelief is like, yeah, men just don't think Tatiana Maslany is attractive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she like can't get a date. I mean, it is even like... though she's Tatiana Maslany and a lawyer. <laughs> um, yeah, I which mean, it's like, like that's a woman demented. with dark hair is the least desirable thing to ever. <laughs> pass so it's funny. Screen. 
it's funny to imagine her going from like this role that calls for her to be like an undesirable freak to like, <laughs> you know, glamorous super spy. Right. I like it though. And I'm for it. And we stand a Canadian queen. Absolutely. And also we already know that she can pull off like wearing disguises. Yes, definitely. Okay. She can work dreads. Uh, no awards, no nominations, nothing, nothing, nothing. Not, as you mentioned, no Wikipedia article, not mentioned among like one of Brubaker's significant works. I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get it. I think this is one of like one of the stronger books in his bibliography. I think this is uh, certainly I would put it above Fatal. No spoilies for our. I was ultimate ranking i was gonna say like i think this is basically as good as like virtually any criminal i agree that's really good (laughs) i agree and and because it is in so like different of a format with like being ostensibly a single story arc that unfolds over 15 issues it is more like novelistic in that way than anything in criminal which is like not that I, I one of the things I like about criminal is how kind of like anthological it is, mm-hmm. but there is a richness to it that any no no one criminal story right, can really right. achieve. And so and and like I said, I think Epting is doing like career work. The lettering, as we've already talked about, is not something that usually stands out to me. And if it does, it's not in a good way. And it's unreal. I think Brightweiser is an excellent colorist. Like, there's no reason to me why this should get zero mention at the awards. But yeah, no, no awards, no nominations. Smash hit first issue, cleared like forty five thousand and had multiple printings. Uh, late stage, it was pretty consistent around like fifteen ish thousand, which for an independent book, again, like pretty popular for an independent book. Which I think makes sense. Like, it is basically, like, from the directors of mm-hmm. Captain America. It is the it is kind of the gray man of comics. <laughs> Too true. Um, but, like, and, and that's with a very irregular release schedule. Right. As we mentioned, like, Westworld did impact things, but, like, it was sort of bi-monthly, but often like tri-monthly or like quad-monthly. Right. It, yeah, again, almost three full years for 15 issues. So to maintain a readership at that level, which is only slightly below like East of West, which not that that was like the most regular schedule, but a smash hit comic from like an absolute A-list, like height of his powers creator, which, you know, Brubaker is too. Yeah. But it was one of the better selling independent books for sure. So it's not like no one was reading it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. I think that will have to do it for today. Surely. Uh, thank you for listening. Please remember to give us all of our flowers, wherever you get your podcasts, rate us highly or your flowers. Sure. Yeah. Uh, got the runs pod on Twitter. Sure, yeah, your flower. Rating us highly. Gotthronspod at gmail.com. <laughs> Next week we'll be covering, we'll be back to the old Brewfill. Brew Baker and Phillips. With We're getting brewfied. Sure. The fade out. Uh the 12 issue 
maxi series, if you want to call it that. Uh, so we'll be covering all of that next week. But until next time, to, to be, be continued, continued buddy. <laughs>